Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Before we get started with today's episode, here's a quick message about a podcast from Ozzy, Take On America. Are all Black men progressive? Are all Asian American millennials politically engaged? This special audio series brings together people of the same race or ethnic background in order to shine a spotlight on their diversity and cut through the cultural stereotypes. Explore the range of opinions among groups of people who are often presumed to vote as a block. Get an inside look into the conversations these communities are having among themselves. Based on the groundbreaking TV show, Take on America with Ozzy is now available as a podcast. Check it out. Take on America, the podcast, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Mary Harris. I'm the host of Slate's new daily news podcast, What Next? And I have a question for you. Do you ever get a push notification or a news alert on Twitter and think, no, stop the news. I want to get off. Then What Next is the podcast for you. Each afternoon, we're going to break down that headline you've seen your friends retweeting all day and tell you what matters, what doesn't, and what next. Just look for What Next on Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. See you there. Welcome to our latest bonus episode of Women Belong in the House. The midterms are just around the corner. So on top of our regularly scheduled narrative-style episodes, we're bringing you lightly edited additional content. This week, I had the pleasure of attending a panel at the National Women's Party headquarters in Washington, D.C. The event was called Equality Salon, Gender, Race, and American Politics in 2018. As you'll hear, it was a live event, so apologies for the audio disruptions that come with the live audience. Special thanks to the National Women's Party for letting me record and publish this episode. You'll hear more from Executive Director Zakia Thomas, but here's a quick background on the organization. The National Women's Party was founded in 1913 and played a groundbreaking role in securing women's right to vote. After the ratification of the 19th Amendment, the NWP fought and continues to fight for full constitutional equality for women. The NWP actually drafted the still unratified Equal Rights Amendment, and the organization has used legal, lobbying, and mobilization campaigns to otherwise advance equal rights under the law. Uh, I'm Zakia Thomas. Um, I wanted to welcome you here to tell you a little bit about the National Women's Party. So the National Women's Party was founded in 1913, and we were very instrumental in the effort to pass the 19th Amendment, which granted suffrage for women uh, in the Constitution. And we know that that fight was long fought, and it continued even after the amendment was passed, um, and we made sure that women's rights were first and foremost on a lot of people's minds and make sure that that fight was continued as we went on. Um, so we are here in a very historic place. We actually start. We actually came to this location in 1921, um, and this is where we've been ever since. And so if you had a chance to see the house itself, we have artifacts from suffrage, we have artifacts from the Equal Rights Movement, and you can see 
um, the history alive here today. So tonight, our panel, as you well know, we're talking about gender, race, and uh, polit- American politics in America in 2018. As they speak, I'll take a moment to introduce each panelist. Our moderator, Chris Yonke, is a nationally recognized author and speech coach. She's a leader on how women can be powerful communicators. She's worked with Michelle Obama and Hillary Clinton and has provided speech and debate coaching to countless women candidates and elected officials. Uh, Chris, I'll let you take it from there. Terrific. Thank you very much, Sakia. Thanks so much for hosting us and everyone for coming out tonight. So it's terrific that our conversation tonight is taking place in this historic home because here it is, 2018, and again, women are making history. Yeah. So tonight we have an opportunity to talk about how women are challenging, changing, and disrupting politics in America today, and we've got the experts to give you the inside (laughs) scoop. So my first question to the panelists, and Leah, if you don't mind, we'll start with you. Who is the person in your life that was most pivotal when it comes to the work that you're doing now? Okay. Um, good evening, ladies. <laughs> Thank you for putting this all together. We appreciate your leadership. That's Leah Daughtry. Leah is a nationally recognized teacher, preacher, speaker, organizer, leader, planner, and political strategist. In 2008 and in 2016, Leah served as the CEO of the Democratic National Convention Committee. She's also the president and CEO of a boutique strategic planning firm called On These Things. Uh, To the question, I think, I don't know that there's one, uh, probably many, uh, but the two that I would lift up is is first the Reverend Jesse Jackson. Mm -hmm. Uh, I met him when I was six. Uh, He was working with my dad at Operation Breadbasket in Brooklyn, Mm -hmm. and we were on a boycott. Uh, we were boycotting A and P stores because they wouldn't hire black people. Mm-hmm. And I went with my father to that, and so Reverend Jackson's been part of my life for my entire life. But I worked on this presidential campaign in 1984, and although we had, I had grown up in an activist household, an activist church, activist community, so we were always doing something political. In college, I went to Dartmouth, uh, on, in, in New Hampshire. It was my first time choosing to engage myself without mm-hmm. the surrounds of my community and church. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, I worked on his 84 campaign. And, and from that, um, you know, we didn't quite know what we were doing. And I certainly didn't know what I was doing. But he trusted me to sort of work to organize that part of New Hampshire that I was in. Uh, and we learned a lot about presidential campaigns, mm-hmm. what to do, how they really worked, and for people who had never been involved in the process. It was a tremendous learning experience for us. Uh, And then we saw the way that Reverend Jackson changed the face of American politics, the way that he changed the party's (coughs) rules, the way that he registered so many people to vote as part of his campaign. And as a result, at the end of his 84 and 88 campaigns, nearly every city in America had an African-American mayor. Thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of people were registered to vote. The party rules changed. We got a win-and-take-all. The number of automatic delegates was increased to ensure diversity. So he had a tremendous impact on the way that I think about politics, the way that I engage. And the second one would be Alexis Herman, uh, who's the Secretary of Labor, and I worked for her when I was at the DNC when Ron Brown was chair. She was his chief of staff, and I was her assistant then, uh, and I worked for her when she became the first African-American to be the CEO of the convention. 
and I sort of have followed her around. I was her chief of staff at the Department of Labor, and she was the labor secretary. So she is my mentor, my friend, my sister. She is the first person I call when I'm trying to think something through, whether it's career or business or personal. She is my touchstone, even after you know 30 years. She's the first person I call, and I'm the first person she calls. So we just. Um, walk through all fat who we're dating, who we're not dating, <laughs> <laughs> you know, what, what to do with your money, Um, so I couldn't think of an individual person either, but I think in thinking about why and how I got into women in politics, that's sort of a field. That's Kelly Dittmar. Kelly is an assistant professor of political science at Rutgers University Camden, and she's a scholar at the Center for American Women in Politics. Her research focuses on gender and American political institutions, and she's written two books, including her latest called A Seat at the Table, Congresswomen's Perceptions on Why Their Presence Matters. Um, and what made me interested in it, I started, not surprisingly, it was like through research, right? So I started doing a lot of research in college, and it was just the area that I sort of attracted to. But then I went to El Salvador, I'd done a lot of work and research looking at women's movements globally and the role of women in social justice movements and went to El Salvador and met with women from Las Dignas and Comadres and organizations that had really helped in the revolution. And that was a moment and a sort of group of people that sort of made me realize the importance of women here as well in American politics in all sorts of social movements really made me pay attention, I think, more closely to that topic and then want to fight to have more women in sort of the halls of power, right? So that needing the women on the outside but also realizing the value of having them in institutions making decisions about where a policy was going to go. And then I just started working for any woman that I could. So I worked for Jennifer Granholm and worked for Rosa DeLauro, uh, women who've really paved the way for others, I think, as well. So they've all sort of contributed to me wanting to continue this work. In fact, when I left Rosa's office, and she was like, you don't want to stay. And I said, well, I, want, I just want more people like you in office. And so how do we make that happen? And so that's why I'm fortunate to work where I work. Ashanti. And for me, again, I think there's definitely a lot of women, but Leah would be the main one. <laughs> <laughs> Lastly, that's Ashanti Golar. You may recognize her voice as she's been a frequent guest on Women Belong in the House. Ashanti's the political director of Emerge America. Prior to that, she served as the National Deputy Director of Community Engagement and Director of African American Engagement for the Democratic National Committee. She's also the founder of the Brown Girls Guide to Politics. Isn't that nice? <laughs> I just thought that was so fabulous. Because, you know, we are in 2018, and we think, oh, there's just this abundance of black women in politics and women of color in politics, and there's really not. There's still so much to do, so much work to be done, but I even realize sitting here, I'm able to do this work because of the doors. Leah, Donna, Minya, Yolanda. <laughs> you know, that they open. And for me, being, I tell everyone, I'm just a little black girl from Las Vegas who liked politics, never expected to be in DC doing the things that I did. When you looked at C SPAN, didn't see a lot of women that looked like me. In Nevada, not a lot of women that looked like me. I had Rose McKinney James and Yvonne Atkinson Gates. So I had to look to DC to find those mentors. And for me, I knew I wanted to do party politics, and it was Leah 
leading the TNC, leading the conventions, and she's just been such a role model, continues to be a role model. You know, you need that role model who will tell you when things are good, and also that role model who will send you that email that says, come see me, baby. <laughs> and she's definitely helped me become the woman I am today. Um, the name I would add to the list is Anita Hill. Because I had just recently moved to Washington, D.C., and I was working in the media training and speech coaching business and, you know, sitting at home, just as we all were a couple of weeks ago, right, and watching um, Supreme Court nom nomination hearings and just being outraged. And that's when the light bulb went off in my head. Gosh, um, you know, watching the women from the House of Representatives watch up, march up the Capitol steps and just seeing how few there were. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to stay in the media training business, but I really want to work with women. I want to help women move into positions mm -hmm. of leadership. So let me um, set the table with a couple of uh, context or environmental questions, and then we'll talk more about the women candidates that are running as well as voters, and then we'll start to open things up for your questions. But um, we're, as far as setting the table, let's talk about the pink wave. I read somewhere um, that on November 7th, Americans could wake up and see 100 women have been elected to the House. We could have as many, you know, this is a generous estimate, but as many as between 30 and 40 women who could win. So that, of course, would break the previous record of 24 women who were elected in 1992. So just to, and, you know, just jump in whenever you want, but what are your thoughts on the pink wave? How strong is it? What are, what are you expecting on November 7th? That so I, I will say, since I tend to be the wet blanket in the room, um, so I'm aware that, um, so yes, 100, but there are 435 members of the U.S. House, 535 members in Congress, so even after this year, based on the predictions that we sort of see at COP, if you use sort of Cook ratings, it be you know, important, notable, milestones surpassed, records surpassed, new women in Congress, particularly Democratic women, particularly um, also milestones for women of color elected across the country and to Congress and, and perhaps governor, of course. So these are all things that we want to celebrate, but also to remember that the work isn't done in a single year. So when we talk about Year of the Women or Pink Wave or whatever it is, that we need to think about a longer term solution to getting to parity. So, so my guess is we're, we're you know, under 25% still in Congress after this cycle. We are at 20% um, today, so we can still see a rise, but we'll have a lot more work to do beyond November. So for me, I actually kind of disagree when people call it a wave. I like to call it a movement mm -hmm. because I don't think this is anything that's going to die down soon mm -hmm. because even if we just look at what happened after the 2016 election, you had women mobilize. That was part one. You had the Women's March, Women Mobilize, part two. Me Too Movement, Women Mobilize, part three. And now we're seeing part four with Kavanaugh. There's just things that continue to happen that make women say, I have to be that person running for office. I can no longer count on other people to represent my best interests. And even though we see all of these women running, we still have to realize there's a lot of men running too. And when women run for office, they do win at equal rates as men, but we still don't have that many women running for office. 
You know, I was so certain in 2017 that we were just going to see this huge increase. You know, when reports came out that yes, records number of women running, but it wasn't that much of an increase at all. We still have a long way to go. And if we say that this is a wave, I think we're also going to diminish young women mm -hmm. who want to think about running for office because we're kind of low-key saying, well, there's this time right now for these women, and then it's going to die down, and then you'll have your time. And we can't be speaking to young women that mm -hmm. way. We have to keep all of this energy going and realize that our words matter in the way that we speak about this. Yeah, I, I think, it's, I, you know, for me, the only poll that really matters is election day. Um, so I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. <laughs> cautiously optimistic. And it's, it's gratifying to see so many women running, so many women of color running. Uh, I, I'm, I'm always careful and concerned when we daughter talk about young women, uh, which which sets up a young women versus old women kind of thing, particularly for women of color who get into the game later in life. Mm -hmm. And when we begin to start talking about some women need to move off the scene to make room for younger women, we are discounting. We are acting as though A, experience doesn't matter, and B, uh, D, disqualifying women who start later. Mm -hmm. And for women of color, particularly, we start later mm -hmm. in the business. And when you say, we need to bring in a new generation, you are automatically leaving out uh, women of color who start later and discounting the value of experience, mm -hmm. which is the conversation we're now all having about whether Nancy Pelosi ought to be speaker, mm -hmm. right? Which aggravates me to no end. It's like, why are we having a conversation about the most qualified woman who's, pu who's pushed through the most legislation in the last 10 years and who's raised, I saw today, almost a billion dollars for Democrats in the last four years. Why is she not qualified to be speaker? I don't get it. I don't, I don't understand. Why, why do we need someone new? I don't, I'm not sure I understand that. So I think we have a, a, a lot to do in our own conversations <laughs> as women around how we, how we position our wins, how we position who's running, uh, so that we are careful to include people as opposed to exclude people. Shanti, I'm going to pick up on, you mentioned uh, the Brent Kavanaugh hearings. Um, and so what are everyone's thoughts on the impact of those hearings and the Me Too movement? Because I'm sure everyone in this room, we were sitting there glued to the television watching what was happening. Do you have a sense of, I guess, who that's going to help or who that might hurt? You know, it was very interesting just seeing the hearing, you know, working for a women's organization, there, there was just a lot going on for us internally as well. You know, not only staff, you know, several of my colleagues just had to go home early. It was too much for them. You know, our alums started sharing their stories too. But I think for me personally, it was just very weird because I have this vivid memory of my mom watching the Anita Hill hearings and talking to her friends on the phone. And for me now, all these years later, for me to be watching, mm -hmm. you know, Dr. Ford and to see history repeat itself, I think for us it just showed how we think we've come so far, but we really haven't come so far. And looking at that hearing in particular, I just kept thinking, 
How different would this look with more women on the Senate Judiciary Committee? This would be entirely different. I think there probably would have been a different outcome. I had anger at the fact that Dr. Ford has to stay composed and hide her emotions. Whereas Kavanaugh, I'm sorry I'm being petty, I'm not calling him by his new title, you know, was able just to go in and rant and be angry, and we're not afforded that. And I think it absolutely, without a doubt, mobilized women. You know, I see it within our network, and our alums owned it. They own the fact that we're going to talk about this because, again, they were looking at a upper middle class white woman who wasn't being listened to about her sexual assault. What do you think happens to domestic workers? What do you think happens to immigrants? This is an issue that knows no party, it knows no social class, it knows no race. And I love just seeing you know, women saying, talking about this does not make me weak. I, I really hate that narrative too, that, oh, you're weak talking about this. It makes them strong to be able to say, this happened to me, but look at where I am now. And just again, going back to young women, I think it's gonna have the most impact on them in particular. You know, sharing their stories of sexual assault and knowing that it isn't something that has to hinder you, you know, in your life, in your career, when you want to run for public office. You know, we did also hear that it did give, you know, Trump, you know, a bump with his base. And, you know, that is to be expected, but his base is mainly white men, you know, and they felt they saw a white man being attacked. But all in all, I do think it is going to be a factor in the midterm elections. It'll be interesting to see how it's going to play out. I think it'll play out in different different ways in different states. That's why you really can't quantify it too much. I think it's going to, it will not be a burden, I will say this, for the women candidates who are running and who are embracing talking about this and the Me Too movement. Kelly, did you have something? Yeah, here? just about, so, so obviously the partisan, so I think you're right, the issue shouldn't have partisan mm -hmm. bounds, but it does in the reaction. Um, and my colleagues, um, Aaron Cassess, Maria Holman, um, and Tiffany Barnes have done research on hostile sexism and beliefs among Republican women versus Democratic women and how does partisanship identify with or associate with gendered attitudes in different ways. And we have to be sort of clear about not talking about a singular reaction among women to this hearing or to this issue generally. Mm -hmm. um, in the ways that women voters will engage on this, the way that they will respond to how people campaign on it is actually very different along partisan lines in that the gendered attitudes of Republican voters and supporters are actually more close to each other, Republican men and Republican women, than they are Republican women close to Democratic women. And so the energy that you're seeing on the Democratic side, particularly among Democratic women saying, I'm enraged, I'm, this is horrible, right, this is terrible, you also see an energy among some Republican women saying, I can't believe the Democrats politicize this yeah. issue, I'm worried about my sons, I'm worried, and so we have to, in all of our conversations about about gender, not only in this cycle, but in all cycles, 
sort of remember that women voters, I mean, we were all made very clear, aware of that in 2016, if you didn't know it before, um, are not monolithic in how they come at politics, but also how they come at issues around gender, oh, yeah. even more specifically. And I think it surprises a lot of people, but we've sort of, we've known this, mm -hmm. um, and the research sort of shows it, but it, every time it happens, I think folks are sort of surprised, like, well, why wouldn't all women believe the same thing about this issue, especially if they've had personal experiences? But we just we find that they don't, so. Well, let's remember that a majority of white women voted right. for Roy Moore. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So, you know, it's not as simple as, and, and it seemed to me at the time, like, who, who voted for Roy Moore? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Man's a pedophile, it's clear. Right. And, and yet women who, who have children, yeah. who hang out at the mall, yeah. uh, were okay pressing a, lip, a lever for him. That boggled my mind, because I just couldn't imagine a voter that would do that. But that was, that was, for me, a moment of saying, well, you know, something, there are women who don't, identify with the same sorts of issues in the same sorts of way. And I, for, for me, for Kavanaugh, and I, I, was, um, I was privileged to sit, to be in the gallery when the vote took place. And it was sort of a surreal moment of, uh, of, of, of my own duality as, uh, as a woman and as a black person. Um, and as a woman, I was just totally outraged and oh my God, this is, this is a horrible thing. And as a black person, I was like, well, just another thing. <laughs> Just another something else, and then another, another fight. We gonna be, we've been fighting for 400 years. I guess we're gonna fight So you know, trying to trying to align those two things. Um, but it, it, I am I am thrilled with the fact that more women feel free to to state their experience and to uh, and to be listened to. I think that's great and it's overdue. It is not clear to me whether that has much of an impact in the election cycle. I'm going to take your wet blanket because she will depress everybody. <laughs> I think for a certain segment, it's good. Yes. yes. But it also happened in. Uh, you know, a, a little distance from the election, though we all know, know Americans have a short attention span, right. so we'll yeah. see, you know, if the energy maintains to election day. Yeah. Well, let me pick up on that point that you're raising. Um, I love the, with the headline, I think, in the nation, uh, they phrased it as, well, what's wrong with white women voters? Um, you mentioned Roy Moore. We know that um, white women were as likely to support Kavanaugh as Dr. Ford after hearing both of, them, both of them testify, and then we know that Trump won 52% of the white women's vote. Yeah. <sighs> <laughs> <laughs> don't even know what the know. question is. <laughs> sort of research done by others smarter than myself, but I think that um, that really looks at the ways in which white women's realities are tied to white men's. And so we have to be honest about it, right? So so if if your reality is tied to the privilege of your white husband or your white family members, that that plays into your perceptions about 
gender equity and race and racial equity um, and that is from this building I mean gosh the sort of history around the women's party and the suffrage movement and black women in particular and not being included right there were white women willing to sort of sell black women's votes for the suffrage amendment and we have to all be honest about it and have that conversation because before we get to what's going on today, it's what's been going on for hundreds of years. Um, and I think that we are still not fully having that conversation um, in a way that really grapples with history and grapples with, you know, it's not just that white women are traditional. Like that's, no, there's more to it, right? There's more beneath what their beliefs are. I will say we also have to be careful, as we do with any group of women, to say that all white women, right, aren't the same. All black women aren't the same. They don't come at these issues with the same perspective. So we did see a shift in college-educated white women in the last election. There is a question if that continues to shift in this election. Um, but certainly, I think thinking about the really sort of roots of power and how white women benefit from the status quo is something to pay attention to when we interpret what's going on with their voting behavior. I think something I'll add to this because I am very vocal about this issue a lot. There are several arguments on my Facebook page about this, <laughs> you know, and a lot of you know white women do say, well, not all white women. And I have to always clarify a bit when I talk about this because when I'm talking about the women who voted for Trump, who yeah. voted for Roy Moore, I'm actually not just saying that was all conservative women or Republican women. Those were women across political parties. Those numbers just don't include Republican women for Trump. That was Democratic women for Trump. That was Libertarian women for Trump. That was Independent women for Trump. You know, at Emerge, all day, every day, 24-7, I focus on you know, recruiting women to run for office. But even doing that, I know that not every woman is going to vote for a woman just because she's a woman. That's just a fact. That's a reality. So when we think about it too, it is lots of, for a lot of women, you know, race, regardless of party, is going to come down to how they vote. Mm -hmm. And that does have an impact and that's something that we need to keep in consideration when we're talking, you know, for me about white women voters, because I'll get the response, you know, from some of the white women in our network. Well, I don't know any Republican women, Ashanti. Not really what I was saying. <laughs> you know, but I had to pose the question to one of my, you know, colleagues, one of the women in our network saying, okay, you know, when you're in a room with all white women, because she lives in a state, you know, where it's predominantly white, do you really know that all of those women are voting the same way? Do you really know all of them are thinking the same way as you do? You think they are because they're coming to the same event as you, but at the end of the day, do you know which box they check? Which is why I say, talk to everybody. Talk to everybody. Even when I did a panel this weekend, you know, a woman asked me, well, what about conservative black women? What do we do about them? And I said, well, 
94% of black women voted for Hillary. That means 6% didn't. Omarosa and her friends. <laughs> we are not a monolith either as black women, which is why when I'm speaking, when I'm having conversations, I really am talking to all black women. The Brown Girls Guide is for all women of color because we need to be talking, we need to be sharing those things and just realize that just even as women, it's not gonna come down to a woman voting for a woman just because she's a woman. Okay, can I pick up on that? Because I know that in a few minutes we're gonna start taking questions from the audience. And I do wanna talk about the lack of diversity up and down um, the ballot all across the country. Um, so what are some of the <laughs> challenges if, um, that women of color face? And if you care to comment at all, I've been fascinated by Ayanna Presley, who is the congressional candidate yes. in Boston, um, who won in a white majority district without the backing of mm -hmm. traditional establishment organizations. I thought that was fascinating. Um, what do you think about Lauren Underwood in Illinois, who's African-American, running in a white majority district? What are her chances there? Um, are there new pathways or new routes for women of color to win? I think, you know, there are, there are um, there's a website, blackwomeninpolitics.com. There are 400 and almost 500 black women running for office this cycle, mm -hmm. up and down the ballot, right. which is amazing. 34% of the women running for Congress this cycle are women of color, mm -hmm. uh, which is amazing. 32%? 34. 34. 34%. 34%. 34. Is that the Center for American Women? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I go to website. So, so I think we're seeing a wave of women of color who are uh, finding new ways to campaign, mm -hmm. new ways to appeal to the voters, because in almost all instances, they are not receiving the support of the institutional party structures. Mm -hmm. And whether that is the formal structures like the party committees, or the informal structures like who donors connect with and give to. We saw it, I, you know, we saw it with Stacey, mm -hmm. uh, where she did not receive the endorsement of the party, even though the, part, and the party said, we don't endorse the primaries, but they endorsed Andrew Cuomo. <laughs> so you have this sort of disconnect yeah. around that, and, and I'll use Andrew Gillum in Florida as an example mm -hmm. uh, of someone who didn't have the, 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 the backing of the institutional party structures. He raised $7 million. His opponents raised $37 million. So this huge disparity for people of color, and today we're talking about women of color, when they choose to step out into, uh, into electoral office, but I think what they bring is a different ethos about how you reach a voter. Mm -hmm. And you see it with Stacey, she went into mm -hmm. pockets where no one had ever been. Mm -hmm. She was knocking on doors, she was talking to people, she was activating the informal networks that exist in communities like sororities, like the churches, like the beauty salon culture, all of those sorts of things where you can talk to voters at a different level. And in the African American community, most of that, we, I've been in the business for 30 years, I've never gotten a call from a bolster. We don't get polls. Right. So nobody got, ever got a poll. So we're not captured in the polls. But we got our underground poll happening. Way of campaigning, and I think what that will ultimately net us 
is a group of new elected officials mm -hmm. who have no use for the institutional party, mm -hmm. yes. but who understand their importance because of the struggles they had, and so they will come to office and change the party from the outside in. Mm -hmm. And that's what the party needs right now, is, is a new way of doing business, a new way of connecting with voters. That means new pollsters, new ways of, of polling, new message structures, all of that that is currently uh, locked into open to the old way mm -hmm. and these people like Lauren Underwood like Ayana like uh, Johanna Hayes in, in Connecticut yes. Lucy McBath in Georgia Ilan Omar in, in Minnesota are and if you look at them a lot of them are elected mm -hmm. Ayana's an elected right. official so we're not talking about yeah. somebody who sprung up out of you know Zeus's head they have been <laughs> in office they are elected officials and they just decided, I'm going to step out here and I'm going to try something new mm -hmm. and a new way of connecting. And because, you know, of the way that our country is structured, we said, ooh, a new face. Yeah. <laughs> Ayanna's been in city council right. for, for, for yeah. years. She's not a new face. Stacy was the minority leader yeah. of the legislature. She's not a new face. <laughs> but, you know, the way that our, our messaging is structured mm -hmm. in this country, right, we tend to, we white, Male is a state, is what is is what is okay. It's the status quo. So here comes Stacy, the minority leader of the Georgia legislature. Oh my goodness, a new face. No, she's not a new face. Neither is Andrew Gillum. Neither is Ayana. Neither is Lauren. Neither is Ilha. They're not new faces. They are people who are now. And I'm I'm afraid that you know they're the flavor of the month because it's sexy now to support women of color. It's sexy now to you know engage. Ooh, I'm supporting this black woman candidate, this yeah. Latina who's running for governor. Isn't this great? Will will the attraction last past this cycle? Mm -hmm. Will we be able to make the, the the changes in our thought pattern and the way that we do business? Where it's running the mill for Stacey Abrams to be in, to be running for office. Kelly, you had wanted to jump in, and then we will turn to you. And if you have questions, we'll be happy to entertain them. I think this is so important thinking about um, when I wrote my first book about how women is sort of navigating gender terrain in campaigns, talked about the long-term investment of institutional change. That candidates don't just win or lose at the end of the day, but they can also change our conceptions mm -hmm. of what a candidate looks like and how they behave and how you message, how you do this mm -hmm. job, right? And we all are consumers of it. So how much do we take in in this moment? And I just wanted to point to an example from Ayanna Presley because I thought it was the, one of the most sort of teachable moments in this regard. When she was at the Kavanaugh, anti-Kavanaugh rally recently, um, there's great clips of this everywhere. She got up to the podium and she said, I know I'm not supposed to be angry. I'm a black woman. I can't be angry in public. That's what everybody says to me, right? That's what campaign people are going to tell you. Be careful. Be careful about this. Be careful. But I am angry. In fact, I'm outraged. And she went on to express her anger. What I love about that moment is not only did she disrupt mm -hmm. the stereotype in her behavior, she didn't stifle herself. She didn't adapt to the institutional rules. She said, the institution has to adapt to me, mm -hmm. has to change to recognize me. But she did it in a way that called out the bias, mm -hmm. which I think is an important piece, which is, I know what you're all going to say. Mm -hmm. And so let me preface that. Call your bias right now, <laughs> and then proceed. 
in a way that is authentic to me. And I think you're seeing women, not just Diana Presley, but other women do that this cycle in a way that is doing a service to so many other women who will run after them because I think it does disrupt the institution. Even the women who don't win on election day, I think can be disruptive of our, of our sort of collective conceptions. So. So I did want to chime in because I think this is probably the one thing that has been irking me the most this election cycle. And since you mentioned my Twitter profile, if you go to my Twitter, my pinned tweet is actually an op-ed I wrote about this, talking about the fact that women of color do not only have to run in districts that are majority people of color. Let's just stop it. It's such an antiquated notion. And that is the biggest thing that women of color face when they want to run for office. People saying, well, can you win in that district? Well, I live in the district. I, I can run in the district. That is the main thing that they have to deal with, followed by you know, using Leah's point about Stacy. Well, are you qualified? She's the minority leader. You know, Ayana, the first black woman, first woman of color on the Boston City Council, they have to deal with that. Then you have to deal with the other questions about viability, the ability to raise money. There's just extra work for women of color when they have to run for office. It's already hard running for office when you're a woman, but when you're a woman of color, there is an additional set of barriers with the biggest one thinking that people feel you can only relate to people who look like you mm -hmm. and not realizing women like Stacy, like Oyana, can bring along with them a multi-racial coalition that they can cross age barriers, mm -hmm. race barriers, socioeconomic barriers. And that's what we really need to be talking about if we want to continue to see more women of color running. A quick aside. This episode is brought to you by Audible. One of the impressive panelists today, Leah Daughtry, co-authored For Colored Girls Who Have Considered Politics. You can find it on Audible. I drove to and from the event in DC from North Carolina, and I couldn't have done it without listening to Audible. All the latest political must-reads are on there. Or, if you need a break from politics, Audible has an unmatched selection of audiobooks and original content to peruse. You can get a free audiobook of your choosing with a 30-day trial membership if you go to audibletrial.com slash womenbelonginthehouse. Any audiobook you want, for free. Check it out at audibletrial.com slash womenbelonginthehouse. So let us turn to you. Does anyone have a question that they'd like to pose? My question will be concise. <laughs> Janine Lee Lake, African-American woman, new face, very unexpectedly won the Democratic primary in Mike Pence's, Greg Pence's district. She has gotten zero support from institutional structures because she's running in a district that is leans 94% Republican. Um, but she won the Democratic primary. She's doing well. What advice do you have for a candidate like Janine, who is a new face and is getting no institutional support? I'll take this one because I have this conversation all the time with our alums in general, our alums of color, is you just have to continue running an authentic campaign and being you. What you do not have in money, you can make up in doors. Women, women of color, they're always heavily outspent, particularly the first time that they run for office. 
We have had alums win a race on $200,000 when their opponents have spent a million dollars. You can do it when you have a good message. And we're just very much now living in a different political time. My political manager all the time says, what do you think about all of this? And I told her, I don't know. I've never even seen anything like this. But what I do know is that when you're looking at maps and districts and DPI and voter turnout, everything is up for grabs. I think we saw that with a lot of these special elections that happened in 2017. You had people winning in areas where they were not supposed to win, where they had a 30-point deficit from the other party. But they were out there, they talked about the issues, and they won. Even if we want to just bring it back to the D.C. area, if you look at what happened with 2017 in Virginia, you had lots of our Emerge Virginia women got elected to the House of Delegates. And I like this. And I love it because we have this great slide, and at the, it shows all the white men being replaced by women. But it's also multiracial women. It is the first open transgender legislator in the country. It's the first Latinas in the Virginia House of Delegates. It's adding Jennifer Carroll Foy, another black woman voice who has a criminal justice reform background. It's the first open lesbian in the Virginia House of Delegates. You don't know which way voters are gonna go. And you can't just say because you look a certain way or you have a certain sexuality, people aren't going to relate to you. So many of our alums win in conservative areas because people get to know them first and what they care about and what they're gonna do. And they don't even know their party affiliation until they go to vote and it doesn't matter anymore. So tell her, keep doing her thing. I mean, it is awful. This is something Leah talks about all the time. Just the lack of support that women and women of color don't get because they don't see you as that perfect traditional candidate, which I hate in general, because at the end of the day, there is no perfect candidate at all. It does not exist. So I wanted to get your take on the voter suppression efforts. Since 2013, we've seen this erosion in voting rights. And sometimes I feel like the way to correct that is to get people in office federally, locally, who would change those rules. But then they can't even get there. And so I'm like, I worry about Georgia. I worry about North Dakota. I worry a lot. <laughs> so I would just love your thoughts on that. Yeah, so Georgia seems to be particularly egregious. The um, gubernatorial candidate on the Republican side, he's the Secretary of State, and it's 53,000 voters who yeah. potentially are not going to be able to vote, and dis disproportionately, they're African American voters. And Latinas. Yeah, and this is obviously the race of, um, you know, that Stacey Abrams is running in. And also, same thing in North Dakota with high yeah. Americans. Change the ruling that you have to have. Uh, this just happened last week. Yeah. In order to vote, you have to have a full street address, uh, which knocks off a lot of the Native American communities because there aren't street addresses on the reservations. They are PO boxes, so all of those voters are being struck from the rolls, which obviously impacts Heidi's ability to uh, to run uh, to run her race. Yeah, it's an ongoing problem. It's a, and it's something that we have to be extra vigilant about. 
uh, ensuring that people are registered, that they know what their status is, mm -hmm. that you register to vote, check the rolls, don't wait until election day to find out that they've tried to purge you. And, and listen, we've got to run people to be secretaries of state. This is where it's an office that is often ignored. Uh, people want the bright and shiny Senate and governor, but the secretary of state is where these decisions are made. This is what's happening in Georgia. The man who was the secretary of state is running to be governor. He is playing the game and refereeing the game at the same time. What sport does that happen? But that's what he's doing. But let's remember Florida in 2000. The Secretary of State, Catherine Harris, lives in infamy. So you have all of these instances, and those are just two, where the Secretary of State is the problem. And so one of the offices that women ought to focus on is the Secretary of State. It's low-hanging fruit a lot of the time because there's not a lot of people running, but you control these processes in a way that, in an outsized way. So for, for this cycle, what I would encourage people, call and make sure you're on the roll. If you're not on the roll, start fighting now. We're bringing a lot of media attention to, to this fella in Georgia Kemp yeah. um, to try to put some public, he's acting within his rights. It's just not ethical. Yeah. It's just not ethical, not that they care about morality and ethics, but uh, <laughs> clearly. But you know, we try to bring a lot of attention to that to, to back him into a corner just on the ethics of it, not clear whether we'll be successful. And you know, there are uh, the uh, ACLU and NAACP Legal Defense Fund are filing lawsuits mm -hmm. uh, about it to try to correct it for, for this time. But for all of you here, you know, encourage women to run for Secretary of State. And take, we got to take those offices over. And just one quick thing, oh, just on that, is also we need to pay attention to who we're voting into state legislatures. Because yes. mm -hmm. we're not only talking about a number of state legislatures that we're electing this time will do the redistricting next time, yes. Yes. but they will also influence, yes. they can also influence voter suppression laws, yes. right? Laws that are put into place depending on who's in control of the state legislature. And then also in many states, people forget auditors play a role too in mm -hmm. redistricting as well. You know. That's just something people, oh, I don't care who my auditor is. You really do need to care because they're going to work with your secretaries of state, your state representatives to draw these lines because gerrymandering, that's just another form of voter suppression. And we need to call it what it is. In the back. So, hello. hello. I have a question, and I'm not quite sure how to ask it. So, I'm frustrated. No, I'm angry. <laughs> okay. Women of color have shown up consistently because we have been loyal, faithful voters and have received very little in return. What can we do to, to short, in addition to running for office and being a part of the, the structure from the inside, what else can we do? to wrestle more support and attention to our issues and to become the valued constituency that we really are. So there's levels to this thing. <laughs> so if you, so you, there is the institutional party structures, state parties, mm -hmm. and this is on both sides of the aisle. Mm -hmm. I have a lot of my friends are Republicans, black female Republicans, right? They've been Republicans since Lincoln. They never switched. <laughs> so they, they have a, a similar struggle, although there are many fewer of them, so it's a, it's a steeper hill. 
you know, they're the institutional party structures, the state parties, the national parties, which have their rules, which control a lot of the purse strings. I will say, I served as chief of staff of the DNC for eight years under Terry McAuliffe and Howard Dewey. I can probably count on one hand the number of times black women's groups mm -hmm. asked for a meeting. Wow. Asked for a meeting. Now, because I am who I, ha I am, I had a man, right? Because that's just what, that's what I do. But the number of times organizations, or Latino organizations, so we like to understand what the party is doing in our community. I count on one hand over five, over eight years. Frederick Douglass said, power concedes nothing without a demand. Never has, never will. We have to ask for what we want. And sometimes we ask politely, and sometimes, it requires a more strident tone of voice. <laughs> but if you don't ask, if you don't make it known that you are there and you have an expectation of how you will be treated as the, the largest and most loyal voting bloc in, uh, in the party, if you don't set an expectation, then the, the power's not giving up anything. They're not giving up money, they're not giving up anything. So my suggestion would be, where you are situated in whatever state you are, do you know who state party chair is? When was the last time you went to the state party? When was the last time you showed up and said, I represent, I'm from Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority and Corn. I always wanted to be an AKA. <laughs> <laughs> talk to you about how you are in how you are engaging in the community. We like to understand who you're investing. Who do you have your eye on? We have some sisters who are who we understand are running. We like to know how what your plan is. Why not? Why not? If we don't ask, they're gonna keep doing business the way they've been doing Who are your posters? How are you spending your money? I've been voting Democrat for the last 20 years. How are you spending your money? Who are your vendors? Who's doing your mail? What's the staff look like? I want to understand. You want me to vote for you? So I'm asking you some, I will have some real concerns and questions. I'd like an answer. And if you can't give me an answer, if you won't meet with me, then we can go to another tactic. <laughs> then we will run around. I will tell you the show. We have a friend named Barack. Uh, and he lives in Texas. He's uh, Indian American. He lives in Texas. He lived in Texas, and he decided one day to get involved in the state party. So he went to a state party meeting, and you know it was it was his, he started at district level. He went there. It was him and three white guys, and he started asking all these questions. They didn't want to answer him because he was the new guy. They didn't know who he was. He was Indian. It was Texas. Oh, we can ignore him. He went back the second week asking more questions. He went back. He would go every week, and he just ignored him. Then it was time for elections. So he went to the meeting. He took four friends and outvoted all of them. <laughs> and voted them out of office. And he was the new party chair. So most of the time, don't overestimate the organization of the Democratic Party. <laughs> <laughs> Taking it over is not that complicated. <laughs> Just 
requires organization. <laughs> but you gotta get in there and, and make your demands known, make your presence known. Make sure they know who you are, that you're gonna show up, you're gonna ask questions, and you have some expectation. I've been voting for you, I'm a loyal voter, and I expect you to treat my community in a certain mm -hmm. way. If you don't step the bar, we know that from dating. You gotta set that bar. If you set the bar, you get almost anything. <laughs> Um, so let me uh, interject here because I know that we're running out of time. Um, so we've been spending a lot of time, uh, time talking about the importance of electing women. And so I'd like to turn to Kelly and say, why does it matter? <laughs> what are the implications? Because I know that you've just written an entire book about this. Yeah. So what, what happens when women are elected to office? So there's an extensive literature that looks at, you know, what difference does it make in terms of bills that get onto the agenda, how things are voted on. The book that we wrote was based on the perspectives of women in the 114th Congress. We interviewed 83 women, um, that's three quarters of them, so we interviewed most of the women in that Congress and we asked them directly, what difference does it make? Why, what have you experienced? And just to sort of put it as quickly as possible, I really pointed to three different areas that won't surprise you, but I think sort of reinforces the point about why we need more women and a diversity of women at these tables. One, they talked about the sort of honor of being there to inspire other women and to change sort of the face of leadership for the next generation. So we know that having them in front of a classroom, having them on C-SPAN <laughs> makes a difference. Um, Joyce Beatty talk, talked to us about going back to her childhood school and saying, when I was a young black girl at this school, I never thought I could be a member of Congress. Now these girls in this classroom think they can be. So that symbolic impact is something they really valued. They also talked about how they changed just the rules and the structures. Remember, this is a structure that was built by and for men, particularly white men. And so how do you change the way the place works? Tammy Duckworth now gets to bring her daughter to the floor um, because she changed a rule. It was women and Nancy Pelosi who helped push forward to get a bathroom. It actually finished under John Boehner, but, um, but you know, who said, oh, the women in the house don't have their own bathroom, right? The structure was built for men. So how do they change the structures? And then finally, policy. So it's not that having women means there's one new voice or a singular voice in policy making, not at all. But they're bringing distinct life experiences and perspectives. And so we could go through countless examples from the ways in which black women talk to us about criminal justice reform conversations, the ways in which Latino women talk to us about their role in immigration reform debates, the ways in which women talk to us about their roles in conversations around sexual assault in the military, sexual assault on college campuses, and how Kirsten Gillibrand you know, said to us, look, um, I know what it's like to be victimized. I know what it's like to not be believed. I know what it's like to be uh, in this situation, coming forward and trying to tell somebody my story and be in a situation not the power position. Um, and so that sort of perspective is something that we can't quantify and build sponsorship. We can't quantify in what they say necessarily on the floor, but we know that that's a different perspective that changes both, again, the agenda as well as how conversations are had uh, in these institutions. And without those voices, there are lots of things that are left off the table altogether. Um, and there are things um, that go forward that don't consider how it will affect distinct communities, especially distinct communities of women. We just need more of them there. One thing Donna Edwards said to us was, you know, look, we make a lot of differences in this institution, but we're not to scale. Mm -hmm. And so how do we get us to scale so that we can have more of an impact?
So let me wrap this up with a twofer, if I may. Uh, moderator's privilege here. Um, and ask each of you quickly to address two points. Number one, what's, uh, something that's on my mind is, how do you want to define this year of the woman? Because I personally think we need to expand the definition. It's not just about the number of women who win. So that's question number one. And then question number two, I'm sure everybody in the audience is thinking about this. I know that you are all super busy women who are doing many, many, many wonderful, important things. Is there one thing that you might ask or suggest or advise for the women who are um, in the room tonight and then will be listening on the podcast? to make a difference come November 6th? I think when we talk, think about the year of the woman, it's, it's about the numbers of women who are running, the numbers of women who are winning, but it's also how women are engaging, mm -hmm. how women are in, involving themselves in, in the political system. Are they registering? How are they voting? How are they showing up in this process? And that includes who's commentating, mm -hmm. who's writing op-eds, what are the images of women that we are seeing through this cycle? I don't want to be on election night watching a bunch of men talk about the year of the woman. Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's something a little skewed about that. Um, so, how, so for me, it's the year of the woman when we begin to see engagement on every level. That's one. And the second thing, what you can yeah, do. Yeah, piece of ice. Every woman's got five friends. <laughs> call, your fi call five friends. Make sure they're registered, make sure they're voting. I'm concerned Taylor Swift registered, she said something and registered 100,000 people. I want her to go on election day and tell them to vote. It's not enough to be registered. Have you, get your list of five, who are you calling to say, are you registered? And on election day, have you voted? Mine is similar to Leah's because I learned from the best. <laughs> I think with the Year of the Woman, it is women running for office, women running campaigns, being campaign staff, women as activists, women starting their own organizations. I think that's really what it is, is women owning their full political power, the entire spectrum, and not just a tiny piece, but all of it and knowing their power. And then for me, it would pick, it would be Pick five women and donate to them. You know, your five dollars, your ten dollars, your fifteen dollars, that will go a long way. Fifteen dollars, ladies, that's some Facebook ads for a candidate. So pick some candidates and give to them because we're in the middle of GOTV right now. A lot of states are doing their early voting and your small donation can actually make a big difference to getting more women in elected office in this country. There's 520,000 elected offices. That's a lot. <laughs> and like our friend said, if we want to get to parity, we have a long way to go, but it's also on us to help them get there. Um, so I've been saying to everybody, please don't call it the year of the woman. Maybe that's a start. Um, and because I think when we talk about it as the year of the woman, we talk about it as an anomaly. Like, we need this certain magic confluence of factors that allow for women to take power. Um, obviously, I've recognized there are years where women are going to fare better or doing more. We have high levels of energy. 
but I think we have to think about that as sustained energy. Think about maybe this year as the foundation on which we build into the future. And also remember that this is not some anomaly. It's based on a lot of work that women did to get to this point. Stacey did a lot of work to get to the point to run for governor. And by calling it like, well, she won in the year of the woman, I think it negates some of the work that women have done. So I would say think about it in long terms. And also remember that when we talk about the year of the woman, we can't be that monolithic because it's not going to be the year of Republican women. Um, and so it's not going to, the results of this year and the dynamics of this year won't play out the same for all women. What I would say in terms of the doing um, is to my point earlier about how we change institutions, um, in some ways it's on us. So I would say embrace the women who are disrupting, the disruptors of this cycle. They're taking a risk in saying, I'm going to campaign differently. I'm not going to play by the rules. I'm not going to wait my turn. And we have to support women who are willing to take that risk so that they'll do it again if they don't win this cycle, or so that other women will do it like, run like them, or feel like they can actually run a campaign if they aren't a member of the party their whole life, or whatever, they don't fit the profile. So I think sort of embracing and supporting what I'm calling the disruptors um, is, is a way in which to sort of move the institutions forward beyond this election cycle. And the way I would define this year is by how women ran their campaigns. They've been groundbreaking. First time ever we've seen women candidates breastfeeding in TV ads, driving minivans, scuba diving. Have you seen the gal in Florida who's scuba diving because she wants to do something about climate change? If you haven't seen the ad that uh, first ran in Cosmopolitan, the eight Democratic women veterans, yes. the sisterhood came together and produced probably one of the most fabulous ads ever. So I love that. They're rewriting the playbook. And then my piece of advice is, for every talented, fabulous, amazing woman in this room, will you please consider running for office? Thank you for listening to this bonus episode of Women Belong in the House. If you enjoyed it, please tell your friends. If you didn't, or if you have suggestions on how we can improve, please let me know. We'll be back on Tuesday featuring another inspiring candidate. Talk to you then.